Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It's taken us a while, but we finally arrived at uh, the last of the seven churches uh, of Revelation, uh, which Jesus wrote personal letters to. Um, Laodicea was about 43 miles east of Philadelphia that we looked at last week, and it would have been the final stop uh, on on this first century postman's uh, postal route. You know, he would have went from uh, Patmos, uh, picked up the letters uh, on the island of Patmos where John had the vision, uh, as it were, and and took it to Ephesus, then Ephesus to Smyrna, Smyrna to Pergamos, Pergamos to Thyatira, and then Thyatira to Sardis, and Sardis to Philadelphia. And from Philadelphia, He has moved on now to the last church, uh, Laodicea. Finally, finished his postal route. And all he'd have to do was to walk 100 miles due west uh, to Ephesus again and grab the next ferry boat back to Patmos and he'd be back where he started. Um, A couple of these churches that we've looked at uh, have been good, but under the all-knowing, all-seeing eye of Jesus, most of these churches had one problem or another and we've been looking at that. And the downward spiral, as it were, the downward spiritual slide that had begun with a loss of first love in Ephesus, it now culminates, it reaches its peak, if you like, or its lowest form uh, with total apostasy in the church at Laodicea. Uh, This church had gotten so far away from God, uh, and from what God had founded it to be, that it literally made him sick to his stomach. That's what he says. It it made God gag. If you've ever had that feeling, you know, I've had that feeling once or twice, you know, where you feel like you want to be sick and it's in the pit of your stomach and and you wish you could and and then you look at something that makes you gag. Uh, And that's just how God felt about this particular church. It's terrible, really. So let's read uh, in Revelation chapter 3, the last last part of of, of, uh, chapter 3. But first of all, reading, of course, if you'd stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. Just want to read the blessing that's given to us in the first chapter. Blessed is he or the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then, of course, at the end of the book uh, of Revelation, there's a, not just a blessing at the beginning, But there's the warning at the end. I warn everyone, the writer says, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away words from this book of the prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which is described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, words of Jesus, yes, I am coming soon. And his coming is nearer today than it was last week. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. It could be today, uh, lest any of us take that for granted. And so the letter to the church uh, in Laodicea, uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. 
To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So, to be, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we say amen, and uh, God will bless his word. Please be seated. Um, before we, we, we really get into what this church has to teach us today, let me just remind you again uh, that, you know, that we've seen how each of these letters to these churches can be viewed from three different perspectives. Each of these seven letters have a, a primary or a first application to the individual churches that, that existed uh, and that they were originally sent to back in that day. These are real letters to real churches with real problems. But having said that, these letters also transcend those churches to be relevant to all of us with a personal application. Uh, these letters speak to every Christian uh, in every church. And then thirdly, these letters also describe not only a single church in history with lessons that are applicable to us today, but they describe a kind of church that has existed throughout the history of the church. And so these letters have this prophetic um, anticipation that I've mentioned a few times and each church would seem to represent a period or a dispensation uh, in the history of the church. And the church at Laodicea that we're looking at this morning, this last letter, it pictures the period from about the mid-19th century through to the rapture, uh, which is when Jesus will return in the end of time and he'll, he'll take his church out of the world uh, before the time of the great tribulation all over the earth. And in this perspective, Laodicea is a lukewarm kind of moderate and increasingly apostate church, which is, you know, as many scholars would say, which is where many churches have ended up today. When we look back on 21 centuries of, of church history, we can see how accurate the book of, of, of this prophecy has been. Each of the seven churches represents a, a time where the prevailing, prevailing general atmosphere of the time was consistent with the conditions described in each of the churches. As we come to this last church, it's clear both as history and as prophecy would tend to confirm that Laodicea really is the church of our day, the church of the 21st century, of which one of the characteristics is the phenomenon of popular opinion. Some people have called it the, the tyranny of the minority, including that of a minority view, view being dom the dominant voice to be listened to in these days. It's significant that the name Laodicea actually means the judgment of the people, or to put it loosely, the people's rights. And, and is that not a symptom of our time and of our day? Everyone's fighting for their rights. You know, you probably heard the story recently up north. A man who worked for the government in the government building didn't like the fact that he had to walk past a photograph of the queen in one of her buildings. And, and he exercised his rights to express that. And the photograph was taken down. And he was given £10,000 in compensation. Because he felt he had a right to that. The people's rights. There's a Latin term, vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. It seems to be the cry today. Many churches are operating on that basis. Things are advocated 
if, if they're popular with the people outside the church or with carnal Christians inside the church, and in doing so, the truth of Scripture is conveniently kind of set aside for the sake of popular opinion. The rights of the people alone, whether it's the people inside or the people outside the church, is now the moral compass by which we make decisions and take direction within the church of God. There was once a time when the church taught that the self-life, that is the natural life with which we were born, was something that needed to be crucified. It required self-control. It required discipline. As Jesus said in Luke 9, he that comes after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There was once a time when the truth of scripture was the bedrock of all evangelical churches. And you could count on the fact that the Bible was, was fully accepted as the inerrant and authoritative word of God. But now it seems churches and, and seminaries or, or, or Bible colleges, many of whom still call themselves evangelical, are rethinking the reliability of the scriptures to form our faith and practice. And they're claiming that it must be judged by men before it's accepted. That's a Laodicean spirit, if you like, foreseen by Paul in, in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, for the time will come, maybe now is, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And unfortunately, and, and sadly, that's what's happening today in Christendom, particularly in the West. And the result of that is that the popular culture begins to prevail rather than the standards of the Word of God. And many believe, including myself, that this paints a picture for us of the church that will exist when Jesus returns. And it may even be typical of a state that currently exists in Christendom, as I said, especially in the West. Let me ask you a question. What is the greatest challenge facing us as the church today? Have a think about that. What's the greatest challenge facing us as the church today? Many people would suggest that it's the onset of Christian persecution that's coming our way. But I have to tell you that that's, it's not that because persecution actually is the fastest way to grow a healthy, vibrant church. The greatest challenge to any church is not persecution, but listen, the greatest challenge to any church is prosperity. We're among the wealthiest nations in the world. We have more churches, more Bibles, more Christian literature, tracts, DVDs, Christian schools even, Christian media, than any of the other nations in the world. And yet, in spite of all these blessings uh, to the church in the West, and I include, of course, the United States, Canada, and that, despite all of these blessings, we're not influencing our culture like we should. And the reason is simple. As Christians, we can't really handle prosperity because with freedom and prosperity, we become comfortable and we become self-sufficient. And this brings the temptation to trust in our blessings rather than to trust in the blesser, the one who blesses us. We tend to seek happiness in things and security in wealth. And the result is that we too often fail to rely on God. And because of that, our service for him becomes blunted. Leonard Ravenhill was a great revival preacher of yesteryear. 
He was a close friend of A.W. Tozer. And he was a mentor to the Christian singer Keith Green. If you know any of Keith Green's songs. Brilliant songs. And Leonard Ravenhill wrote in his book, Why Revival Tarries, he wrote, The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions, and today the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Oh my goodness, was that a prophetic statement to make 50, 60, 70 years ago? This last letter, you know, is the saddest and the most disturbing, uh, and the one which we can probably identify with Clearly today, Jesus instructs and and warns us against the lukewarm effects of trusting in material wealth and having a a consumer mentality rather than pursuing a vital relationship with God. The Laodicean church had lost its impact on the world and because it had become preoccupied with the world, it had left Christ standing outside the church. Can you imagine ending up like that? certainly the picture of the church in the last days Uh, and we've moved in our series uh, from the days of the apostles really today to the days of apostasy churches like Laodicea dominate I would say the landscape of our world and while individual churches might not perfectly fit the mold of this church in Laodicea elements of the problems that existed in Laodicea can be found in many churches And those same problems can be found here if we're not careful. And they might even be here if we're to be brutally honest. Laodicea, you see, was a part of a tri-city area, three cities, closely associated with the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. And in order to get some context regarding this church, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae actually helps us to understand some things. Um, It's interesting to note that While Paul never visited this church in Laodicea, uh, as much as we know, even in his his day, he was concerned about it. He was concerned about his spiritual health. He writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1, I want you to know, he said, how much I am struggling or concerned for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. We also learn that Paul wrote a letter. Paul actually wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. We don't have it in our canon of scripture It seems to have gone missing, but he wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea. It's it's been lost in Colossians 4, 15 and 16. He says, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. When this epistle or this letter is read among you, make sure it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that likewise you read the letter to to Laodicea. So there was a letter that was written. It, It seems to have got lost. And yet another indication of Paul's prayerful concern for this church is found in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 17 where Paul gives a stern warning to one of its church leaders. He says, tell Archippus, what a name that is, Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. This letter to the church in Colossae was written 30 years before the book of Revelation so perhaps it was Archippus' failure to do what Jesus had commanded that started this little church's downfall and its downward spiral. Now, Laodicea was noted in the day throughout the Roman uh, uh, Empire, uh, throughout the Roman province of Asia for its wealth, its commercial life, its medical practice. Uh, As the banking center of Asia, it was the most prosperous of the seven cities with many large, beautiful homes. 
the ruins of which are still visible today and probably some of them were owned by Christians. Laodicea had a, had a flourishing clothing industry and the countryside that surrounded it was renowned for a certain breed of black sheep. Is there black sheep around, around here? I don't know. Um, but this, these black sheep, its wool was, 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 was like, a, it had a glossy sort of a darkness and it made it popular, so much popular that its wool uh, was used for garments and, and it was exported all over the world. And the city was also noted for its medical practice, especially for its eye and its ear lotions. And the medical cult of Ascapaeus was located there. And still today, many medical professions across the world wear that symbol, that ancient symbol of Ascapaeus, a staff with entwined serpents around it. You'll see it in many medical practices today. So taken together, Laodicea was a kind of a Bank of Ireland, a Dunn's department store, a Bowman hospital, all rolled into one with the best practices and all of those things. But in addition to those three good things, Laodicea was also known for one bad thing. It's lukewarm drinking water, which came from two sources. In nearby Hierapolis, there were hot mineral springs, but by the time the water got to Laodicea through aqueducts, it was kind of brackish, it tasted like minerals, it was no longer hot, it was lukewarm. And cold water was also piped in from Colossae, but it too would be tepid by the time it got to Laodicea. So Laodicea was not a town where you could find a cold, refreshing drink of water. Instead of satisfying your thirst, the water you got there would probably tend to make your stomach a little bit queasy especially the lukewarm mineral water from Hierapolis. Let me ask you another question this morning. Would you consider yourself to be a moderate? Now, that's not a political question, but just generally in life, would you consider yourself to be a moderate? Not many people would answer yes, especially when it comes to politics these days, which seems to have people polarized because the moderate person has become a bit of an extinct species. But let me ask the question this way. Are you a moderate Christian? Are you a moderate Christian? It largely depends how you define the term because in the King James Version, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, says, let your moderation be known to all men. That's a good thing. It means, you know, live with a gentle spirit. Be considerate of others. Don't always demand your own way. That's the sort of moderation we should all desire. But there's another kind of moderate Christian that's not so good. Because the moderate Christian has a moderate Christ who makes moderate demands. And that's exactly what was happening in the church at Laodicea. Outwardly, the church in Laodicea appeared to be strong, appeared to be prosperous. And clearly the people who worshipped there considered themselves to be happy and blessed. They lived in a town that others envied. Apart from its water. And it seems that this church drew some of its members from the wealthy families uh, around it. But unlike Smyrna, uh, there was no persecution. Unlike Pergamos, there was no false doctrine. Neither is there anything corresponding to gross immorality, uh, the immorality of Jezebel that we looked at in another church uh, in, in Thyatira. Laodicea seems to have been a comfortable place to live and a comfortable place to go to church. It was a church filled with moderate Christians. And that combination made Jesus sick to his stomach. Now, all this context in mind about Laodicea, 
let's go back to the text itself. And as in other letters, Jesus introduces himself in a very significant, a very relevant and meaningful way to this church. His opening description of himself forms the key to what this church really needed. He presents himself as, verse 14, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You know, Amen is usually the final word of a prayer, isn't it? But here it means much more than I'm finished or let's eat the food. It's a sign of agreement. And here Jesus calls himself the Amen or the last word. He's the last word in human history. He's the last word in your personal life and in my personal life. He's the last word. Not cancer, not divorce, not bankruptcy, not death. Not hell. Jesus and Jesus alone is the last word in your life and in my life. He's the final amen to all that God has declared. And because he's the faithful and true witness, we can trust him completely. What he says is true. All he says is true. And it's true for all time. For the church at Laodicea, it means that when Christ issues his denunciation, in fact, he has nothing good to say about this church. With the other churches, there there was some Uh, complimentary things that he said but well this church was nothing but condemnation and so they can't escape uh, what he what he says by saying well that's just your opinion (laughs) as you hear today no it's the word of the son of God who is faithful and true in all that he says my words don't carry that weight because I can't claim to speak infallible truth but when Jesus speaks the church must listen because he speaks only the truth And the phrase that he uses, you know, ruler of all creation, means that he was there in the beginning. He was, uh, even before there was a beginning, he was there. He was always there. The whole universe owes its existence to his mighty power and, and, and to his sovereignty. And if he stopped holding the universe together, it would fly apart. You know, it said if we were just another degree, you know, closer to the sun, we would burn up. Or one degree further away from the sun, we would freeze up. I don't know what that says about, about climate warming and all that sort of stuff that people talk about these days. But God is sovereign and he holds the whole universe together in perfect harmony. You know, I puzzled over the meaning of Jesus' words when he said, I wish you were either hot or cold. But then a thought came to me that made it plain. What's another, what's another way? Does anyone know another way to describe lukewarm water? water. Do you know why? Been there for a while. Probably at room temperature. Right? Sick, but it, 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 it's neither hot nor cold. It's lukewarm. Room temperature. What do you need to do to make water room temperature? What do you need to do to make it room temperature? Just leave the water alone and it'll become Room temperature. Suppose you want hot water. You've got to do something to make it hot, haven't you? You've got to put it in a a saucepan or or something else and put it on the the cooker or in the microwave because water never becomes hot on its own. And if you want cold water, you've got to do something to make it cold. You've got to put put it in the fridge or, or put it in some ice cubes. Something like that, because again, generally, water will never become cold if it's left to itself. It will always settle at room temperature. So here's the here's nub 
of what Jesus was trying to say to this church. The Laodiceans weren't guilty of some intentional sin, such as committing some immorality, sleeping around, promoting false doctrine, or welcoming in false prophets, because in order to be guilty of those things, you'd have to do something. You must make a decision in order to move in that direction. But how do you become lukewarm? You just do nothing. Just do nothing. You'll become. You'll become lukewarm. A lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a room temperature Christian who has become adjusted to his or hers environment. And rather than changing the world around them, they have slowly let the world change them. And when confronted with eternal riches in Christ Jesus, the Laodiceans had settled for a few euros worth of God. And to make matters worse, they were happy about it. They were content about it. Some churches take the middle road believing the truth but unwilling to take a stand for it. They're evangelical in name at least, but they're not evangelistic. They follow the old saying, well, let's go along to get along. That's happening in many churches today. And that's the very definition of moderate Christianity. Jesus next says something Uh, He said to other churches, he says, I know your deeds and I know your works. To the church at Philadelphia, that was a cause for rejoicing. But here in Laodicea, it was a cause for mourning. Their their deeds, their their works, the things they were involved in, uh, had some serious problems. And while Jesus was disappointed with Ephesus, he was literally disgusted with the church at Laodicea. Jesus comes to this church without a single word of of commendation. And as he considers their works and their ways, he's got nothing good to say to them at all. But we should remember, of course, that this was not an expression of his anger. It was more an expression of, of his honesty. Because in the context of the entire letter, we can see that his words are full of compassion and a desire for this church to get a grip on reality and to change its spiritual course. And the loving thing to do uh, to this wayward church was to rebuke them, only that, they could turn, that he could turn them around towards him. Because as someone has said, the purpose of the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And Jesus knew that this comfortable church needed some afflicting. Jesus tells them that like the water in their city, they've lost their spiritual fervor and they've become lukewarm. They've lost their passion for the Lord and for the lost. They were indifferent and they were apathetic. They were going through the motions, but they were largely unmoved by the things that moved the heart of God. They were not burning with passion for for, for Jesus, but neither were they totally dead and cold. They were somewhere in between, lukewarm. And this spiritual condition was making God sick to his stomach so much so that he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. They'd become a church where it was all about me and my comfortability. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't ask me to change. And too many people today still come to church. They take their seat. They fold their arms. And it doesn't matter if it's a worship service or it's a prayer meeting. Their attitude may as well be, well, bless me if you can. I dare you. Comfortable the way I am. I'm happy to be a moderate Christian. Listen, we must never forget why the church exists in the first place. 
It's not a platform that exists to promote people. It's not a forum for us to advance our own personal agendas. It's not a place where we run the show. It's not our church. It's his church. Jesus died for his church. He purchased it with his own blood. He, he builds it and he sustains it. And no person, no group of people, no congregation is qualified to take his place. So be careful about that. We must ever keep this church and all of the ministry of this church centered in him. This is not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the deacons' church. It's not your church. His church. So the church, this church included, exists for his glory. Little diagram up there. Hope you can read it. That's what we're about. Building a community to bring Christ to the world. It's all about glorifying God. So we're to grow. Grow in the knowledge of God. Character. Share. Share locally and globally when we have the opportunity in missions. We're to serve. We're to connect. That's what the church is. It's all about that. It's not, not about us. So we mustn't forget that we're here for him and our responsibility individually and together is to preach him, to praise him, to promote him and in every way we can, in every place we can. Amen. Average church in our day, sadly, is a study in complacency and non-commitment. Average church is not exactly dead because it's still... They still pray, preach, sing, yet the average church is not exactly on fire either. In the average church, there's no excitement and no passion about who they serve, about whom they belong to, what they hear and, and, and what they're doing. The average modern church is somewhere in the middle of the road. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And you know, it's great to have a multi-generational church. There are some churches that focus only on youth or young adults or whatever, but we're, we're multi-generational, you know. I saw that for the most part this morning in the worship team and out in the congregation. And so there has to be understanding of each other and acceptance of each other and mightn't like all the things the young people do but they mightn't like all the things that we the older people do and all of that but there has to be a coming together and a balance in it all isn't, isn't, isn't that right the word cold here Jesus said you're neither hot nor cold it represents people who whether they're a Christian or not are living in ways that are not pleasing to God or are beginning to uh, bring, bring disrepute to his name Speaking of end times and perhaps maybe these days, Jesus said in Matthew 24, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The word hot represents those on the opposite end of the spectrum, people who are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Those, like those travelers, you remember the two travelers on the Emmaus Road who described their time with the risen Lord when they suddenly realized who he was? It says, were not our hearts burning within us? when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. These Laodiceans were neither. They weren't cold. They still believed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But the passion they once had for him 
Somehow it cooled to the tepid temperature of drinking water. They had lukewarm hearts. And their commitment to Jesus was as limp as an overcooked noodle. John Stott writes this. He says, The Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Their condition describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion so that our Christianity today has become flabby and anemic. I'm talking about the church in general here, but it also applies to me and to you personally, doesn't it? In our walk with God, in our journey with Jesus. Christianity for a lot of Christians has become just a weekend hobby. Christianity of convenience. It's not an all-consuming passion. It's not the discipleship that we find in the Gospels and the New Testament. And let's face it, many of us are a little bit afraid, I think, of being on fire for Christ. For some reason, we don't, we don't want to be labeled as fanatics, Christian fanatics, when the sad truth is that we have no problem being fanatically on fire in other areas of life. It's not true. We have no problem getting pumped up, yelling for our favorite sports team, or shelling out ridiculously priced tickets to to see our favorite sports star or, or hear our favorite music group perform live. We have no problem being passionate about other things. But somehow we don't want people to think we're going a little crazy if we really get serious about our journey with Jesus. It's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Listen, there's nothing moderate or mediocre about Jesus. And he rejects moderate, lukewarm Christianity among his people and his church. Jesus was a man of passion. He was on fire and it showed in his life and his ministry. So when we name the name of Jesus, we say we are Christians, but we're in, and if we're indifferent and unmoved and unconcerned about spiritual things, it gives a false impression really of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he stands for. Indifference and, and apathy are not options when it comes to Jesus Christ. No one who is right with God can look at Calvary and see him bleeding and bruised and broken and come to the table again to celebrate what he has done and be unmoved. No one can hear the claims of Christ and be ambivalent. No one can walk in the middle of the road when it comes to Jesus. There's no song that ends with this, these words. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One day my heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Christians in Laodicea not only had a problem with being passionate, they had a problem of perception. When they looked at themselves, they saw the perfect church. They looked at their position, their possessions, their power, and they believed they were in good shape. And so they, they perceived, they imagined, they thought, well, we've, we've got everything we need. But they were self-deluded, self-deluded. Or like the young woman who went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin and I need your help. I come to church every Sunday and just can't help thinking that I'm the best looking girl in the congregation. Nobody here like that. I know I oughtn't to think like that, she said, that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation, but I can't help it. I want you to help me to conquer this sin. And the pastor replied, dear woman, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. <laughs> if Jesus walked into the average church today and told them that they needed to get right with him, 
you know, a lot of people would be offended. They would be offended. If you encourage them to get on fire with God, they'd probably say, hey, take a look at our church. Look at us. We have all that we have. We're doing just fine. We need nothing. You know, I pray that we'll never reach that place ourselves. We need more than money. We need more than crowds. We need more than good facilities. We need more than recognition out in the community. Above all else, we need Jesus and the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit more than we maybe will even ever know. We need him. We must welcome him. We must follow him. We must obey him. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. We must live to honor him in all we do. Jesus wants his church to be a place where people can relax and find healing like soaking in a hot tub. He wants his church to be a place where people can be refreshed by worshipping in his presence. But here at Laodicea, because of their lukewarm condition, Jesus tells them, he has to tell them, he says, I feel like spitting you out of my mouth. The word spit is a strong word that means to vomit, means to throw up. It's from the Greek word imio, or English word emetic. And an emetic is something that makes you want to throw up. It's like a, a drug that's used to induce vomiting sometimes in cases of poison and so on. In Christianity, there's no room. Let me just say this as we bring this to a close. There's no room for lukewarm, moderate Christianity or neutrality. Weak commitment is no commitment. William Barclay, the great commentator, writes, the very expression of a lukewarm Christian is a contradiction in terms. For a lukewarm Christian has no claim to be called a Christian at all. Though it might sound hard, but a Christ follower can only be a Christ follower. In other words, we can't be passionate about Jesus and passionate about something else that's contradictory to who Jesus is and what he demands of us or rivals his lordship. We sang it, you have no rival. Did you mean that in your own life? There's nothing in your life that you're giving a lot of attention to and time to and money to that rivals maybe what God is calling you to? All about his lordship. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. No man can serve God and mammon or money, if you like. Lukewarm, passionless, pa passionless believer loses his or, her power, his or her power to attract people. In fact, they have a repelling effect. You say you're a Christian, but you're not living it. You're pushing people away. They can see through it. But on the other hand, a Christian or a church that's on fire and passionate in the way that they follow Christ is attractive. Old Uncle George was a town atheist in a small Tennessee town. He was never known to go to church. And on Sunday mornings, he'd sit in the front of the village store and he'd ridicule the people who were walking by going to church. But one day, the church caught fire. And there was no fire department in the little town. So the people formed a bucket brigade. And Uncle George stood at the head of the fire brigade, dashing waters on the flames. And the pastor saw him, and he went up to him, and he said, this is the first time I've ever saw you at the church, Uncle George. And he said, yes, but it's also the first time I've ever saw the church on fire, Pastor. There were two problems in the Laodicean church. First, there was something wrong with their passion. They were neither hot nor cold. 
They were suffering from the leukemia of non-commitment. And secondly, there was something wrong with their self-image, their perception of how they saw themselves. But although this led to seeing churches in trouble, not all hope was lost. Because Jesus also comes to give them his cure for their ailment. As in the obvious difference in verse 17 between you say and you are. And look at it with me as we draw this to a close. They thought that they had it all, but Jesus says to them, you have nothing. They were proud of their achievements, but Jesus said they were wretched, which means troubled. They were to be pitied. They were proud of their wealth, but Jesus says they're actually poor, meaning destitute and reduced to begging. They were proud of their vision of themselves, but Jesus says you're blind. You can't really see yourself as you really are. They were proud of their fashions and their clothing, but Jesus says you're naked before me. And to be naked in that society, as in any society, I would hope, was, was the ultimate humiliation. So they stood humiliated before him, as far as he was concerned. And but then Jesus tells them where they can find all that they need. They'll come to him, but him first, live out the word of God in obedience, they will know true riches. He calls them to get on the, the spiritual gold standard, if you like, and live out a genuine faith before a lost world. He invites them to come to him for spiritual garments so that he'll clothe them in robes of righteousness that no longer appear to be naked in the sight of God. And then he invites them to come to him so that he can restore their spiritual vision. And when that spiritual vision is restored, they will be able to see themselves as they are and they'll be able to see him as he is. And this will lead to repentance and obedience and humble service. In spite of their indifference towards him, Jesus still loves them. Someone has said, you know, I've given Jesus plenty of reasons not to love me. But he still does. Always will. Patiently pursues us, continues to love us. Even when we reject him and disobey him. And so Jesus tells them that just because he loves them like they are, he loves them too much to leave them like they are. And he uses two methods to turn them to him usually begins by using rebuke which means to convict or to correct he will in different ways remind us too about our spiritual condition sending his word to convict us in our hearts and to let us know that if we come to him he will receive us and if we fail to heed his rebukes however he will use more direct methods the word chasten here means to correct with blows so that he may touch any area of, of our life to get our attention and I've experienced that through life not a, not a pleasant experience to have. For a time, without going into the details, it felt like God was dragging me through a thorn ditch, thorn hedge to get me back on the road one time. Love me. In spite of their sin, Jesus loved these lukewarm Laodicean believers. He was passionate about them. And as I said a moment ago, his words of stern rebuke are prompted by compassion for them. Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, you lay the scenes, I rebuke and discipline or chasten. These aren't angry words. These are loving words. And as one of the early church fathers, St. Jerome, once said, the greatest anger of God is when God withdraws his anger from us. When God chastens, rebukes or disciplines us, we should thank him and we should feel loved. You know, if you're like me growing up, you remember times when because of your rebellious 
foolish ways as a young child or a young adult, a young a youthful person. You forced your parents to love you in such a way that the, someone has said the board of education was applied to the seat of knowledge. You knew it hurt, but you also knew that your parents' rebuke and discipline was a sign of their love for you. A deal of security in that kind of love. Jesus wanted these Christians to have that same sense of security and to know that even with all of their lukewarmness, he still loved this church in Laodicea. So he told them to be earnest, be zealous and repent. The word zealous gives us the word zesty. It means to come to a boil. Jesus is calling his church to come to a boil, to get on fire for him again. I'm just going to ask the worship team to come back as we close here. I think that's the third time I've said we're closing, but anyway. Jesus closes his letter with some powerful promises. Laodicea has evicted him, as it were, from their church, and he's on the outside trying to gain admission, to get back in. Yet he loves them and still reaches out to them. And in an effort to get back into his church, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. These verbs, standing at the door and knocking, are in the present tense. So we could say that Say it this way, behold, I am continually standing at the door and I am continually knocking at the door. And you know, of course, Holman Hunt's famous painting, which depicts Jesus standing outside a door with a, with a lantern in his hand and he's knocking on the door. And when the painting was first finished, the man looked at it and said to the painter, you made a mistake. You forgot to paint a handle on the outside of the door. And Holman Hunt responded, there's no mistake. Friend, the handle's on the inside. Jesus knocks, but you have to open the door. Here this morning, and that's, that's maybe where you're at. You've maybe not let Jesus into your life yet. Or he's been in your life, but you're a prodigal. You've, you've pushed him away, gone your own way. Well, I want to tell you, he's still knocking on the door of your heart this morning. One more time. Time's running out, but he's knocking on the door of your heart. But only you can open that door from the inside and let him in. What, what condensation... Uh, what patience Jesus shows us here. He's a, he's a true gentleman. He will knock and he will call, but he won't break the door down. It must be opened by an act of will. What a picture. God is outside his church. And he's trying to get in. He's saying that if only one member would answer him, what a change there might be. Oh, we've, we've got ministries here that are probably second to none. Our youth ministry, for example. Our premises here are palatial. Everyone who has come here that, that I've talked to, haven't been here before, said, wow, what a church, what a building. The presence of the preeminent one could be and sometimes is outside the door by the way we, we, we live and the way we have attitudes within the church. And it shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be so. But Jesus never gives up on his efforts to enter the lives of those he loves and I'm glad for one that he never give up on me and he never will. Jesus doesn't need for the whole church to get on fire so he can come in. He just needs one person to hear him and open their heart to him. Ancient Greeks enjoyed three meals, usually had a large breakfast, like some of the folks that went down to Newcastle yesterday. I've never seen so, many, uh, so much eaten. Um, and, and they had that large breakfast, a smaller lunch, and then a leisurely evening meal that they called supper. And at this evening meal, the family would take their time, they would talk, they would fellowship. It was a time of intimacy for the family. 
So Jesus is saying here, if you'll just open the door of your heart, I will come in and have supper with you. I will fellowship with you. I'm glad he made that offer to me one day. I'm glad he gave me the grace to accept him and to continue to invite him back when I've been convicted, as I have been many times, of my tendency to lock him outside of the door of my heart in some particular area of my life. I need him, and you need him. You know, it occurred to me that becoming lukewarm is especially likely among those who are long-time Christians or churchgoers. Once you've been a Christian or in a church for a few years, you kind of... You know the ropes, right? You know how it goes. You know where to sit. You know how to get along in the worship service. You know how the machinery of the church works. And I came to the startling realization that I am as prone to lukewarmness as anybody else. I've been a Christian now for 48 years. I've been a Christian so long that it's easy to take it all for granted. What amazes New believers may not amaze me anymore. So my prayer for myself, as well as for each of you here this morning, or those who are not here but would listen to this on the internet, just ask that you would join me in this prayer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and just enter into this prayer as I read it for myself and for you this morning. Lord, continue to show me the truth about who you are and about who I am. Father, scrape away any buildup of indifference or apathy or non-commitment that blocks the work of your Holy Spirit in my life, lest, having preached to others, I might find myself spit out by Jesus. Lord, as your servant of old, Jim Elliot, who was martyred for his faith as a young missionary prayed, we also pray that you would deliver us from the dreaded asbestos of life that quenches fire, and Father, that your Holy Spirit would saturate, saturate us with the oil of your Spirit, that we might be on fire for you in these days. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name and for your glory we pray. Amen and amen.